in his book, you are a writer. So start acting like one. Jeff Goins offers up a piece of simple wisdom that fundamentally changed my views on what it means to be a writer. Writers write. It's perhaps one of the most self-evident statements I've ever been faced with. But as a dabbling hobbyist, who always wanted to get my ideas out in black and white, but regularly felt held back by some nebulous something, it cut through all the excuses I tried to create for myself. If I ever want to be a writer, I'm going to have to start writing. Regularly. Consistently. I'm going to have to fight my horror of rough drafts. Overcome my nervousness of sharing my work and having others involved in helping me improve and carve out the not insignificant amount of time it will take to truly invest in my writing. Unless I'm actually writing, I really can't go calling myself a writer. Today's sermon holds a similar lesson, using a parable to challenge God's people to examine their lives in the light of God's eternal purposes. And it's fitting on this International Day of Prayer a day where we specifically think of those whose faith is under attack, that we contemplate our hope as disciples. Finally, as the church universal, looking forward to the day when all wrongs are righted among mankind, today's parable places before us one crucial evidence of our faith, which the Lord desires to be evident in us until the day he returns. Just as writers write, we must remember that the faithful pray. Recall from Hebrews 11 that faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see, regardless of our circumstances, regardless of an apparent lack of response. Disciples of Christ pray and continue praying. We do this because the one to whom we pray hears us because his justice comes at the right time, and because it is what he desires of us until we see him face to face on his return. Let's ask God's blessing on this time. God, thank you that you desire to speak and be heard, that you have spoken to us through your word, and that you speak to each of our hearts by your spirit. I pray that we would be willing to hear what you have to say, that our hearts would be tender towards you, ready to be moved and shaped as you would have us be. And then we would go from here, encouraged and challenged, to continue on in this disciple's path. We only do it by your power, Lord. We pray your blessing on this time. In Jesus' name, amen. In returning to our series on parables, we find ourselves in the book of Luke, which according to its author is concerned with order in the pursuit of certainty. Luke wrote for Theophilus an orderly account so as to bolster his patron's faith and to clear up any misconceptions about the Christ, which were likely as common then as they are today. So why then is this parable of a persistent widow and an unrighteous judge included? As with quite a few of Jesus' parables, this story occurs on the road. Flipping all the way back to chapter 9, we read that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem 
a journey he's still making in chapter 18. At this point, Jesus' ministry is well established. His teaching has spread throughout Galilee, and he has nearly finished this journey toward his ultimate path, the redemption of mankind through his death on the cross. Remarkably, though, Luke first lays out in detail many of the interactions Jesus has along the way. In fact, over a third of Luke's gospel concerns this relatively short period. Jesus' focus in these chapters is on his disciples, which gives us some clue as to Luke's intent in writing, as well as to who today's parable is primarily for. Through a series of interactions and stories, Luke displays Jesus' identification of God's people. Not in the sense of who God chooses, but what God's people look like, how they view their Heavenly Father, and how their worship and service plays out in ways that would be found familiar and relatable to Jesus' audience. Luke wants Theophilus to understand what Jesus' intent for his followers is. Today's parable follows directly in the text after Jesus replies to a question from the Pharisees. Their question prompts an explanation to his disciples of how things will be upon the earth in his day, the day of his return. Jesus lays out several points about the time to come, detailing its unmistakable nature and marking the stark difference between the people of the kingdom and those outside it. Then Luke makes a note that introduces this morning's text. He writes, and he told them a parable that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. This author's note, placed directly after a teaching on the Lord's return, gives us the why of the parable, which we'll examine even further later. But first, we must answer the what, and examine the components of this earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Within the parable, we find two characters, a widow and a judge. Note that even without receiving any further information, there's already a notable contrast here. The judge is defined by his position. The position of judge has always been one of prestige. Anyone who is given the power to make judgments concerning the lives of others deserves the respect that is due to them. Individual judges may stand higher or lower in our estimation based on their views or their personal characteristics, but the position is always worthy of regard, because in many ways, justice is in the hands of the judge. The widow is also defined by her position, but it's more of a social than a civil designation. She is defined by her loss, by what she is without, and implicitly, often even in today's culture, by what she wanted or needed and no longer has. The status of widow has never been sought after in society, and in scripture, it is mainly noted in order to highlight a condition of need or helplessness. Looking back through history, we see in these two characters a contrast of place. Rather than representing all of their kind, all judges and all widows, they showcase two very specific types of people for a very specific reason. 
hearers of this parable from Jesus' mouth would see in its telling the social divide between the judge who holds the power to bring justice and the widow who has no other way to receive it than to come to him asking for it. It is here that the second descriptor of the judge comes into play. He neither feared God nor respected man. This judge's character runs in direct contrast to the guidelines by which Moses selected judges for the people of Israel. According to the wise counsel of his father-in-law, Jethro, these judges were to be men who fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain. And in 2 Chronicles 19, Jehoshaphat, a somewhat good king among many wicked ones in Israel's history, appointed judges and instructed them. Now let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be careful what you do, for there is no injustice with the Lord our God, or partiality, or taking bribes. To this day, such reverence for God and integrity are part of the qualifications that devout Jews look for in a judge. A judge such as this man, whom Jesus describes, and who later self-describes himself as neither fearing God nor respecting man, could hardly be seen as trustworthy to those who knew him. This implication might lead a hearer to question whether he gained his position through dishonest means, as well as whether his ambition is for dishonest gain. So why seek out such a man? Who in their right mind goes to the crooked man looking for things to be set straight, someone who has no other choice. Again, seeing this widow as the picture of one who is lacking any social safety net, as weak without a champion, it's entirely plausible to assume that without receiving this legal justice, she will be ruined. And I can guarantee that there are those among us who have felt some small sense of that desperation before. I can't be the only one. Remember, this parable is given to disciples. We too find ourselves in situations that are beyond us. Financial difficulties, relational battles, moral quandaries, the list goes on. Even if 99% of your days you feel like things are pretty well in hand and there's no need to panic, that remaining 1% will still keep you up at night worrying. This woman is at a place in her life where there is no move she can make on her own to solve her problem. All she can do is ask help of another. And the only one who can help her is a man who has no respect for God or for others. So she asks. We don't know what the life and character of the widow has been up to this point, but we know of her need now because she asks. And because when the judge refuses to grant her plea, she continues to ask. She might be mocked by those who witnessed her appeals, or even chastised publicly by the man she would not leave alone. But this is nothing to what she needs to possess, this justice. Knowing she is lost without receiving justice, she continues to petition. Now, some of us would rather go down with the ship than ask someone to throw us a life preserver. 
Certainly the idea of repeated begging is offensive to many. It's demeaning. And it's much better for our pride to say, well, I tried, as if our inability to solve our problems must indicate that there is no solution. Do you see the lack of faith in such a mindset? Is God's place in our life so small? Sometimes, a lack of continual prayer is simply an indicator that we really don't understand how bad off we are, or how bad it can get. Our faith is eroded because we are doing well, and we forget that we rely on God for our daily bread. Remember that as painful and disheartening as a time of dire need can be, the snare of complacency in times of prosperity and wellness can be even more dangerous. One reason we must continually be approaching God in prayer is because we never know when that connection to the throne will be all we're left to hold on to. The widow has given over all reluctance, never ceasing to ask for justice. And faced with her repeated pleas, the judge says to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. A more literal translation might read, so that she will not give me a black eye. Perhaps it is a figurative statement of how much her pestering pains him, maybe even wakes him up at night. Perhaps such pleas in public put his prestige among the people at risk. Or perhaps there was a possibility that in her frustration at his continual refusals, this woman might even get fed up and attack him. All we know is the judge relents, grudgingly, unwillingly. The one who has no recourse moves the one who holds all the power. This is the internal conflict, the internal contrast of the parable and the widow of the parable of the widow and the judge. But directly following, Jesus places before his hearers another more important contrast. Jesus says, hear what the unrighteous judge says. This is how to approach a parable. Hear what it is telling you. Hear what the soil that receives the seed says about the hearts of men in responding to the word of God. Hear what the man selling all he possesses for that one pearl says about the priceless worth of entrance into God's kingdom. From Luke, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Here, the contrast of the unrighteous judge and the perfectly righteous. The unrighteous judge was pestered into giving justice to the persistent widow. He went against his natural inclination, which if we read into how he's described was to consult only his own desires and ambitions. But God is not like that. And we are not like the helpless widow. Jesus uses the term elect in verse seven. God didn't put in motion his plan of redemption with fingers crossed, 
hoping that someone would hear and receive and surrender and be saved. In John 6.44, we read that no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. God intentionally sought us. He wants us. And his desire is to advocate for and to do what is right and good for us. At this point, it's entirely possible that some of the eyebrows in this room are itching to inch upwards. I'm sure Jesus' disciples did not easily understand a statement like, he will give them justice speedily. That's how God is described. He will give them justice speedily. Any Jewish person listening to Jesus would likely have felt a deep sense of anger at the thought of the nearly thousand years since Solomon's reign, the last time Israel had been truly favored among the nations. Since that time, they had been steadily beaten down until their nation was no more than a commodity to be passed unwillingly from hand to hand among the more powerful nations surrounding them. And for a people who at this point clung zealously to their identity as God's chosen, longing for a conquering Messiah to restore their worldly greatness, speedy justice is probably not how they would have characterized God's rule. And we're no better. How many of us have looked at the potential for what the next four years could hold in our country and been angered or terrified, or looked back at the past year and felt like it's been a decade, and been fed up. We get cut off in traffic and it stews in the back of our minds for the whole afternoon. Humans have such a limited view of justice, and such a pitiful understanding of time, and no patience at all. It's no wonder why we can't imagine why God seems to be sitting on his hands while the world goes Know this, God waits no longer to answer prayers than is perfect. The moment that the evidence of God's working is going to bring about God's purposes in exactly the right way is the moment he reveals it to us. When God acts, he acts speedily. Remembering this, understand at the same time that this parable is not drawing back the curtain to reveal the inner workings of God's plans for creation so that we can relax and bury our heads in the sand. It's showing us the character of the judge so that despite the injustice we see around us and despite our continual need, we might approach him with confidence, even with joy, as the one who will willingly take care of us. Now we are back to the why. He told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. When we pray, we are approaching the righteous judge. And if God is the righteous judge, then we never need to go to God looking for a certain answer. Now, it's not wrong to hope for a result or to pray for one. But if that hope supersedes our trust in who God is, it can undermine our belief in the goodness of God. This is why the problem of pain 
and suffering in the world is such a difficult question for so many. Our desire to see justice in the world is part of our design. And our inability to understand the perfect heavenly justice of the all-knowing God tempts us to doubt God's goodness. If we judge God by how he answers our prayers, we are trying to put the judge on trial. This is another example, and there are many, of how the fallen state of man is so vulnerable to corruption. Even our best impulses, our care for those around us, the desire to see justice, can be avenues for us to reject the Lord. This is why, as disciples, our hope can be in nothing but God alone. And this is why Jesus told the parable of the widow and the judge. Jesus ends his lesson with a question that instead of putting the unimpeachable character and motives of the righteous judge on trial, shifts the focus back to his larger teaching on what the people of God look like. Jesus asks, nevertheless, when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on the earth? The answer to that question is yes. When Jesus returns, he will find faith on the earth. And that faith will look like a life of continual prayer. Your prayer life these days may look like a quick cover letter before you eat an all-too-rare family dinner. Or perhaps you are constantly crying out to God as you see sin and sickness rampant throughout the world. You may have forgotten God's power and his, the wisdom of his plan in your daily life. Or you may need to recall his mercy and his love towards his chosen people. Perhaps these days you simply need to be reminded that you can pray about anything, even for the faith to keep on praying. Regardless, remember who it is that you pray to. If you're here today and the workings of a heavenly judge make no sense to you, Know this, God has already made his ruling on the world through Jesus. Through the death and resurrection of Christ, he has proclaimed both love and condemnation. Condemnation for sin. The banishment of unrighteousness from his presence. But for all who believe, for all who call upon the name of the Lord, they will be saved because of his love that he has declared in Christ. They will find not that their sentence is commuted, but that their record is expunged. It's wiped away. They are now innocent before God's law as if they had never sinned at all, for their sin has been covered by the blood of Christ. They will also find that freedom awaits them, freedom from the power of sin in their lives the freedom to live in a fallen world without falling, the freedom to approach the judge and receive new mercies every day, and to access the power of the Lord and have their faith bolstered to continue in prayer. This is the power of God, and it is the will of God that this opportunity is available to all. Have you received it? And if you've received it, you live in it. 
Is faith your shield against the darkness of the world? Is your time in prayer a time of joy where you know that not only will you be heard, but you will receive? It takes radical faith to persevere in prayer because we see so little. But in Scripture, we see Christ. And he is the goal worth persevering.